One announcement I forgot to mention, uh, there's cookies uh, after service, so please uh, take it, uh, help yourself to some cookies and coffees. And if you're our guest, do let us know of your presence by filling out one of the re response cards and dropping it in the offering bins as you exit. The word became flesh. That will be our subject for this morning. According to commentaries, there is not a more memorable nor significant phrase than those three words. The word became flesh. Follow along with me, some sermon notes, page 11. If you're interested, I included the, uh, that passage in its original language, chi and, the first word is and, the second word logos, you may recognize logic, that means the word, uh, sarks, not a very pleasant word, isn't it? this doesn't sound very nice, sarks, sarcasm, that means flesh, and that last word, become. We'll do two things this morning. First, I want to look at each one of those words and ask, what does the author mean? The word became flesh. A moment on each one of those words and then three implications from those three words. So let's begin. The word. What does the author mean when he says the word became flesh? Well, let's look at John chapter 1 verse 1, a few verses earlier. The author says in the beginning was the word. Notice the author does not say in the beginning the word began. The author says in the beginning the word already was. There was not a was when the word was not. He always is, he always was, he always will be. The word, in other words, is eternal. The word, eternal word, was with God. Christians believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The first person of the Trinity, the Father, is distinct from the second person of the Trinity, the Word. They are distinct in persons, yet the same in essence. The Word was with God, yet the Word was God. Same glory, same power, same might, same majesty, same essence as God. What does the author mean when he says the Word? He means the second person of the Trinity whose existence is eternal. His essence is divine yet he is distinct from his father. The word. Now the flesh. What does the author mean when he says the flesh? Well, I'll tell you what he does not mean. He does not mean the flesh that you and I see manicured, airbrushed, and polished as you check out of CVS and see the sexiest man alive on the People magazine. That is not the flesh that... Uh, uh, the, the author has in mind, keep in mind that in biblical times, uh, the average lifespan was about 35 years. The uh, deodorant was not invented until the year 1890. Most people did not take uh, more than three baths, one at your birth, one at your marriage, one at your death. When the Bible says flesh, it means humanity and all of its weakness and all of its invulnerabilities, or vulnerabilities, excuse me, and all of its indecencies and all of its, frankly, it's all of its smelliness. That is what the Bible means when it says flesh. All the glory, all flesh is like the glory of the flowers. It's here today, it's gone tomorrow. My wife and I were passing by a... a uh, Sunflower, two months ago that thing was beautiful, six feet tall, two months later it's gone, wilted, almost nothing. All flesh is like the glory of the, of the fields, here today, gone tomorrow. These two words have nothing in common. The word is eternal, the flesh is finite. The word is glorious, powerful, divine, flesh, shabby, weak. 
Now the third word, became. The word became flesh. The word became means to enter a new state of existence. When Jesus said to his disciples, I will make you become fishers of men. This is the word he used to become something new and different. The word became flesh. The infinite became finite. The glorious word became shabby humanity. The powerful word became weak flesh. Now, notice, when the Bible said the word became flesh, it does not say that the word unbecame God. No, perfect God took on perfect humanity. While that boggles the mind, that's exactly what you find in the gospel stories. Jesus does things that are only uh, possible if he is fully divine. He stills the water. He raises the dead. He heals the sick. And of course he does. He is fully divine. Yet he also does things that are only applicable or only make sense if he is fully human. He gets tired. You cut him, he bleeds. Uh, he thirsts. He weeps. He does things that are only uh, attributable to his perfect humanity. The word became flesh, added to its, uh, the, the perfect divinity of the word, added to its flesh, perfect humanity. Further, note that the Bible does never says that the word unbecame flesh. Now this word became means a once and done forever and ever for moving forward. What Christians believe is that Jesus Christ, the word of God, flesh and blood, lived he died, he rose again, flesh and blood, and he ascended to his right hand of his father as flesh and blood man. Right? We believe a human being, a man, sits at God's right hand even now. Jesus did not get to the end of his earthly ministry and think, phew, thank goodness I'm done with this nasty flesh. No, he ascends into heaven as a man. That is what we mean when we say the word became flesh. Now this was the subject that baffled the minds of the Christians of the first five centuries. My history professor said, you can think of your church history as this. In the first five centuries, there were four great councils that produced three great creeds which produced that affirmed the two natures of the one Christ. Five, four, three, two, one. Five centuries, four councils, three creeds, two natures of the one Christ. And in those councils, the last of which was the Council of Chalcedon, if you're taking notes, they said this, we teach that Jesus is perfect in Godhead, perfect in manhood, truly God, truly man, the same essence with the Father in Godhead, the same essence with us in manhood. Jesus has two natures without confusion, without division, without separation. That's what it means. The word became flesh. It rolls off our tongues so easily. The incarnation, Jesus, God became man. This is something that boggled the mind, and it should boggle the mind. It's what C.S. Lewis called the grand miracle. It's what J.I. Packer referred to the key miracle. And what he meant was, if you can get your mind around this one, then everything else in Christianity makes sense. God made man. Packer, Packer writes, the Almighty appeared on earth, unable to do more than lie and stare and wriggle and make noises, needing to be fed and changed and taught. There was no illusion. The babyhood of God was a reality. Believe these three words, says Packer. The word became flesh, and you'll have no problem with anything other, other claims of the Christian faith. Dorothy Sayers, right, you may call it revelation, you may call it rubbish, 
But if we call it dull, then what in heaven's name is worth being called exciting? This is what we mean when we say the word made flesh. Perfect God took on perfect manhood and does so permanently, perpetually. Now, let's move on. So what? I'll draw three implications from these three words. I should make the caveat there are infinite number of implications of these three words, but these are just three that I thought of would be helpful for me and hopeful, hopefully hopeful for you. The first implication of these three words is revelation, as a thought is to a word, so God is to Jesus. One of my children is prone to daydreaming. We'll see them, I'll see this child in the middle of dinner, and they'll look off into the horizon, and they will clearly not be thinking about whatever it is, the conversation uh, that's going on, and I'll say, child, what, what, are you, what are you thinking about? And the other children will ask, dad, why don't you ever ask me? When I, because I know, because you tell me, but this one child doesn't. And therefore, if this child does not put their thoughts into words, then their thoughts are unknown to me. Are they happy? Are they sad? Are they concerned? Are they excited? I don't know. Their words must, for, for me to know their thoughts, those thoughts must be expressed in the words. If you were to ask God, what are you thinking about God? He would express his thoughts in a word. The word is Jesus Christ. He, the word is the perfect revelation of the thoughts of God. Christians make this audacious claim that you and I can have a relationship with God. With God. I mean, that's, you may hear it often, that's just ridiculous. It's ridiculous unless the word was made flesh. Because the word is made flesh, you can know God. You can talk to God. You can hear him speak to you. The first implication of these three words, revelation, to know God. Second implication, affirmation. You may know from your study of other world religions that other world religions honor different animals. So I'm thinking of the religion of the indigenous people who may honor a buffalo or maybe a cow in other world religions. Why? Why are animals honored? Well, because there's some connection between that animal and the god or gods of that religion, right? The point of, the, of that little uh, lesson in world history is this, that the same principle applies to, to Christianity. We honor the flesh because Jesus took on flesh. You have no higher affirmation of the flesh and blood body that you inhabit, that I inhabit, than the fact that the word was made flesh. Remember that great song? I don't think we'll sing it this morning. We'll sing it sometime. Hark the herald. God from God, light from light eternal, yet lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb. You've seen those pictures from the, the, the life book of the little infant child in their mother's womb, the little heartbeat, the little fingers, the little hands. He abhors not the virgin's womb. Our affirmation of the dignity and value of life from conception forward comes from these three words. He abhors not the, vir well, no, those, not those three words. The other three words, the word became flesh. 
Our motivation to address real flesh and blood needs comes from these three words. Human beings are flesh and blood. They have flesh and blood needs. And those flesh and blood needs can be met by flesh and blood actions, whether that's the co-drive for carpenter shelter, the work with one of our parishioners to reunite him with his family overseas, the sponsorship of refugees from Afghanistan, or our work with the crisis pregnancy center. These are all flesh and blood needs. And Jesus affirms the reality of our flesh and blood existence. So affirmation, these three words are the supreme affirmation of the value and the supreme motivation to address real flesh and blood needs. Third implication, that is imitation. There are two great symbols of the Christian faith. One is the cross and one is the manger. Both are symbols of our salvation, but both are also paths for you to follow. Remember Jesus said of the cross, pick up your cross, follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. Loser life will save it. The same thing applies to the manger. I include in your sermon notes a quote from Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among you, that Jesus, who was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, yet made himself nothing. Both the cross and the manger are symbols of God's self-giving, sacrificial love for you and me. And that is not only uh, the basis of our salvation, it is a path for us to imitate And you know it as well as I do that your life is not lived in getting. Every good story will tell you that from Charles Dickens' uh, Christmas Carol, which we watched last night as a family, or at least we watched a version of it last night as a family, uh, to, to this story, the good story, the true story that the word became flesh, that Jesus humbled himself here in the manger. He humbled himself further in the cross You know it, as well as I know it, that your life is not lived in the accrual of stuff, but giving away. Every communion Sunday, I place a piece of bread in your wine, and I say, this is the body broken for you. And that is a reminder not only of what has been done for you, but what what you are to do. To give yourself, your body, your blood, to people, to causes that matter. That is where life is lived. Three great words. And from those three great words, the word became flesh. Three implications. Because the word became flesh, you can know him. Because the word became flesh, we value flesh. We value the human person and all its weakness and all its wonder. Because the word became flesh, we follow the path to life. We know the path to life is in following in his footsteps. Imitation. Revelation. Affirmation. Imitation. And I'll add one more implication of these three words, and that is adoration. Because of who he is, the word made flesh, perfect God made perfect man. Because of what he has done, bearing the sins of the world, in his body on the cross, rising to life eternal, ascending to the right hand of God. He is the proper object of our adoration.